Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of the Live It Well podcast. We are your hosts, Chris and Jenny Gravy. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. We are so glad that you're here with us. Each week, we invite authors, mentors, friends of ours who have an inspiring message, who are living their life well. And so our goal is to learn and grow, and we want to invite you to do the exact same thing with us. So hope you're ready. Let's dive right in. So when we think of a life well lived, it's hard to come up with a better example than Eugene and Jan Peterson. Yeah, you like quote them every day. <laughs> <laughs> every day. It's kind I, of a stretch. I, it's, they've been a big impact on our life. For sure. Yeah. There's lots of books lining our shelves with the name yeah, Peterson on sure. it. Back in the spring of 2019, Chris and I had the incredible honor of sitting down with the delightful Jan, beloved wife of Eugene Peterson. Yeah. And what none of us realized at the time was that it would be her very last interview. Shortly after our time together, Jan went home to be with Jesus in May of 2019. And Jan's story of love and faith and really a long obedience in the same direction remains one of our most listened to and most commented on episodes to date. Today we get the tremendous honor of chatting with someone who grew up in the Peterson household as Eugene and Jan's son. I'm talking about Eric Peterson. Uh, Today, Eric shares with us what it was like growing up in the Peterson home, his journey into the calling of local ministry, and the wisdom from his dad, Eugene, through the form of letters that impacted him as a young pastor. What the letters do is reinforce what I saw him doing. He was a really great pastor in just a humble, modest way. Uh, He didn't really stand out. There was nothing all that charismatic about him but he was just solid and faithful. And the letters really reinforce that pastoral ministry at its best is a slog and it's a steady kind of keep showing up each day and make yourself available to how God is going to use you in people's lives and the community that you've been entrusted to care for. Well, as always, we hope this conversation will bless you as much as it did us. Listen in. All right. Well, Eric, welcome to the show. We are glad you're here. Thank you. So when somebody says, so Mr. Peterson, Eric Peterson, <laughs> who are you? What do you do? What's your story? What do you say? Um, I, I think I usually say something like vocationally, I identify as a village pastor. Uh, it's a fairly you know, moderate sized congregation in a rural, semi-rural kind of bedroom community of Spokane, Washington. I'm married to Elizabeth and we are a blended family with six children. We call three bigs and three littles. <laughs> and now there's one tiny involved. I've got a granddaughter who's five months old now, wow. uh, who lives here in the Spokane area. And I'm a middle child. I've got an older sister, younger brother. And I've come to believe that God is in this world in some pretty magnificent and creative ways. And there's revelation occurring all around us all the time. And I'm just trying to learn to be open, you know, using the senses and the intuitions and the nudges from the spirit to pay attention to how the holy is is present to us. That's wonderful. Well, we are so honored to have you with us today um, and to talk about this new these new projects that you've just released. And we're huge fans of your dad, of course. I know you hear that every day of your life, but his work has just been so formative to us and our faith journey. Um, but we also had the incredible honor of having your mom on the show uh, last year, um, shortly before she passed away. And that interview was also formative. It was, it was one yeah. of our favorites. When people ask us, what's one of your favorite interviews that you've done? 
that's at the top of the list for sure. She was so special and we were just so blessed with her. So we are excited to have um, you on today. And I want to talk about, before we jump into this project, we just want to, we want to talk about how it came to be um, and what it was like growing up as Eugene Peterson's son. Well, maybe I'll start with the second part of that question. People assume some things about, you know, being the son of Eugene. You know, he really wasn't all that big a deal when I was growing up. He had a couple of books that he sold, but they didn't, you know, sell that well. It really wasn't until his translation of the New Testament that he was kind of a household name among Christian homes in North America. Mm-hmm. Um, so he really was just my dad. And the the house that we that I grew up in was the church that he started. That is the church worshipped in the basement of this house. And one of the kind of unusual things about my growing up is that there were these kind of hand-me-down liturgical artifacts from a church, I think that it closed in Baltimore, an old historic church. And so there were these three big heavy oak chairs. There was a baptismal font, a communion table, and a lectern, um, and this electrified old pump organ as well. And so that was the the stuff in our basement. Um, And I was born the year that the church was founded. We were born the same year, kind of grew up together. And then a number of years later, when the church was, when the building was built about a mile away, all that stuff just stayed there. And, uh, And they built some new things for the new church building. So as a young adolescent, my bedroom got moved to the basement and all that stuff was just still down there. And we, you know, there are beanbag chairs, we're watching cartoons as kids and messing around on this little pump organ. But the baptismal font was just kind of stuck in the corner of my bedroom. And it's in my study right now. I could. Oh, nice. nice. (laughs) So I was the first person to be baptized from that font. And, you know, I think I knew that my friends didn't have these liturgical furnishings in their house, (laughs) their basement, in their room growing up. But that that environment just sort of worked its way into my imagination, I think, in some significant ways. So I guess I'm, I'm hesitant to say it was anything unusual or special in terms of, you know, who he was, who my parents were. It just, it felt like it was a healthy, safe, you know, meaningful childhood. Um, but because there was so much work that both of them were involved with in establishing the church, uh, I have confessed to a therapist or two along the way that I feel like I got raised in a hurry. Um, there are other people vying for my parents' attention and affection. So I, I've come to realize that while I believe deeply in my calling to be a pastor, I also think there are some psychological motivations that nudged me that way. That is to to have a a vocation that is the same as my dad's was one way that we got close. Which in turn makes this whole project kind of this kind of crazy full circle. And I'd love to take a second and dive into this project. It's called Letters to a Young Pastor. Can you explain to everybody listening here what this project and this is all about? Yeah, it's an accidental project. That is, it didn't start out being this, as a lot of things I think do. I'd been a pastor for seven years as an associate on the west side of the state of Washington. And I think I could count maybe on one hand how many bad days I had in that role, which was kind of the soft side of ministry, pastoral care, did a lot of visitation and therefore a lot of funerals, also did a lot of weddings. Just, I was in kind of that sweet spot of pastoral ministry. And then in 1997, I was called to start a new church 
where I am now. So 23 years ago, um, I came to this area called Colbert to start a new church. So I went from a congregation of 660 people. Uh, it was about 50 years old. We celebrated the 50th anniversary while I was still there to another part of the state, a congregation of zero and a field of weeds. And I didn't have a clue as to how to even get started. And I was afraid of failing. And I read a bunch of books, but I didn't trust most of them. So one of the vices I think that I've been trying to outgrow has been the sin of self-sufficiency. I have a hard time asking for help. And there have been a number of occasions in my life where I was in way over my head and I didn't really have a choice but to ask for help. And that was one of the first ones, frankly. And uh, since my dad had started a church, since his mother had started a church, I thought, well, maybe he knows something about this. And I called him up one day. I said, what did you do when you got to this developmental stage of the church's life? And, <laughs> and I'll never forget this. He said, you know, I never had to deal with that. You're working in a totally different world. It's a different generation. You're just going to have to figure that out yourself. <laughs> cool. Thanks, Dad. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, yeah. But I think it was subsequent to that. I, we had another conversation. I said, I just wonder if you would write some letters. Could you just reflect on the pastoral vocation with me? Because uh, I had the grace given to me to know that there was a, I was in danger of taking some shortcuts, of doing something cheap of doing kind of a, an attraction model that would just bring people together and help them feel good. And I wanted to make sure that my pastoral theology was grounded, rooted, rigorous, uncompromising in the best kind of sense of the, of the word. And I, I actually reflect on this in the book, I think in the introduction, where I was concerned that he might say, you know, I've written about four or five books on pastoral theology. You might just read those. <laughs> and instead he said, oh, sure, I'd love to do that. And so I think it was Christmas of 1999, he wrote the first letter. And then there were 30 some letters that uh, followed where he just, uh, it's a very personal exchange. I'm writing to him, he's writing to me. It's filled in in the in-between the interim time with phone calls and emails, visits, but this is the gist of that correspondence that went on for over 20 years. I found them to be really valuable and I, I would save them and I'd go back to them and reread them. And, and then toward the end of his life, I said, you know, these are really, these have been really meaningful to me. And I think they could be really meaningful to some other pastors. Do you, would you be okay with me sharing these, publishing these? And uh, he said, sure, I think that'd be great. And I was... I felt a little bit uneasy about it because at that point, his, his memory, his mind was starting to falter and I didn't want to exploit him. I never have wanted to, you know, ride his coattails or be exploitative or even appear that way. But after he said yes to that, uh, I would come home after work, pull one or two of these out. They were living with us at that time. It was kind of a trial run to live in this apartment with us. And I'd read one and he'd say, wow, that's good. <laughs> Who wrote that? <laughs> I know it is. You wrote it, Dad. I did? Well, oh. good. Oh, wow. And they are. They are wonderful. It's. I was telling Chris, it's so fun to, to read and to just hear the different tone of his voice when he's talking to his son. You know, it's different than any of his other work. 
So I think that's really special and wonderful to hear. And I'm curious, you know, just flipping through, what are just maybe a handful of the lessons that he taught you through these letters that really stand out to you as just important lessons? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think I would say that what the letters do is reinforce what I saw him doing. He was a really great pastor in just a humble, modest way. Uh, he didn't really stand out. There was nothing all that charismatic about him but he was just solid and faithful. And I think the letters really reinforce that pastoral ministry at its best is a slog and it's a steady, um, you know, you just kind of keep showing up each day and make yourself available to how God is going to use you in people's lives and the community that you've been entrusted to care for. And, um, so I don't think the letters revealed anything new. I think, again, they just reinforce what I had seen and known him to do, which was an apprenticeship in itself, just to you know live with a man who was doing this, who would take me on hospital visits. In fact, I was in the hospital yesterday, and I recalled a time when I was a boy that he took me with him to visit a, a kid who was a friend of mine who was going to have an appendectomy the next day. And uh, just was feeling like, oh, I just I love that he let me tag along and invited me into that world and I got to watch him do home communion. It wasn't just the, you know, the upfront stuff on Sunday mornings in his Geneva gown and, and tabs. It was the in-between stuff, the really ordinary stuff that was just so formative for me. I love it. So this book is so good. It's filled with so many beautiful like letters and just so much that someone in ministry, anyone in ministry, I don't care if you're starting out or if you've been in it for a long time, you should definitely read. But I mean, there's a lot going on in the world at the time of us recording this. There are, there's a pandemic. Uh, there's a lot of unrest in, in our country, specifically focused on, on race and injustice and things of that nature. What kind of letter do you think your dad would write today? If he was writing you a letter as a local pastor in this time, what do you think he would say? Well, I've wondered that myself. Of course, I've longed to have conversations with him around this. But I don't know that, you know, as grave and extreme as the present circumstances are, as the cultural climate is, the pastoral task is not really any different. Um, It's to help people pay attention to the presence of God, to be pointers to Christ, to come to both recognize and to cooperate with the redemptive work of God in the world, uh, that God is in Christ reconciling the world. And there's a lot at stake right now. And I think there's a, a renewed sense that we're not playing tiddlywinks, that what we are about is consequential. And it's not that we have to feel the pressure to get it right. It's more that we need to take it seriously, to show up, to engage, and to recognize that this is perhaps, well, not perhaps, it is, I, I'm persuaded this is a Kairos moment. There's a ripening that has occurred. We are ready for something new that is significant. This is a course-changing chapter in world history. Mm -hmm. Uh, So pastors, if they've been kind of lazy or sleeping or, you know, on cruise control, it's time to, you know, show up and participate in this. This is not work that's given or relegated to other people. This is for all of us in the body of Christ to, we all have a part. We all have a role. Mm-hmm. What are some of the things that you, you're doing as a pastor and as a congregation during this time to show up? What are some practical things that you guys are, are doing? Yeah, I mean, 
one of them is that I'm part of the problem. Uh, and so it's a recognition and a confession of that. I've been complicit in matters of racism and I've contributed to it unwittingly. Um, in seminary, I took a course on the ethics of Martin Luther King Jr. And I grew up in the 60s, south of the Mason-Dixon line, and Baltimore is the closest city. And so I heard and saw some things that formed me. And um, there were some assumptions, I think, that went unchecked for just way too long. And during that course, where I got immersed in the writings of King, I became aware of these, this latent racism that existed within me. And I was just horrified when I came to realize it. And actually, I went to my professor and confessed it. And I said, I, I don't know what to do with this, but I've, I'm under conviction and, and I just want to tell somebody. So as a, he wasn't just this, you know, eminent Princeton scholar. He was, for me, he represented the black community and he was a pastor himself. And he listened, took that seriously, and essentially extended grace. I mean, he, he kind of forgave me and, and uh, said, this is part of your uh, redemption. This is part of your journey. Well, that was 30 years ago. And I just I feel like there's this renewed emphasis. Um, so my wife and I, Elizabeth and I, are in this kind of graduate level course of education. We're reading books out loud together, uh, watching some movies. Uh, just trying to immerse ourselves in uh, the movement in terms of understanding. Uh, I, th I just think we're blind to a lot of it, colorblind. And um, so that's the main thing is, is educating ourselves and being really careful, trying to be careful about what my role is and isn't. Um, I've got a pulpit and I've got a platform, but I'm not the spokesperson for this movement. So my voice, I think, is best used by lifting up other voices and say, here are the people to listen to, here are the issues that we need to be engaged in together. This is a justice issue. God is a God of justice. So our congregation is pretty well educated and they're pretty active. So they're listening, they're reading, they're, uh, they're protesting, they're marching, they're hanging the signs, you know, and uh, get, they're getting out there uh, here in Spokane. Um, so that's, that's kind of the early stages of how we're engaged. What do you think is going to happen on the turn when it comes to the local church? I mean, you know, I think if it's fear of getting a virus or, you know, a litany of other things, you're right, we're going to shift and change through this. What do you foresee on the other side of the church? I mean, is it almost like a return back? Are most churches probably going to look like yours, that it's not this mega thing, but it's a really local context, maybe pastors or partially tent makers. What do you see happening on the other side of this for the American church specifically? That's frankly one of the ways that I pray almost every day, trying to see what that looks like. Um, and I've got a terminal degree in uh, semiotics and future studies, and I'm giving myself about a C minus on my ability <laughs> to predict the future these days. It's, it keeps surprising me in both good and bad ways. So my best shot at it, but just keep in mind that you're listening to someone who just gave himself a C minus in, <laughs> in this work. When I grew up, that was getting me out in the next, in the next grade. <laughs> I mean, I was like, C minus, next grade? That's great. That I'm counts. in. Give me that C minus. <laughs> I think this is not an original idea, I don't think. But my best guess is that the church of the 21st century 
is going to have much more in common. That is, it'll look more like the church of the first and second centuries than of the 20th century. And by that, I mean, it will be more local and it'll be more relational. It'll be less program. Uh, it'll be more kind of organic. Yeah. I think there's a lot of winnowing that's taking place right now. There's a lot of refinement, purification. There's a lot that we have adopted in North America and including the church that we are realizing is pretty superfluous. And now we've got this kind of imposed sabbatical that's been handed to us and the planet and its population is getting a rest like it's never had before. And most people are feeling like this feels sane and uh, I don't want to go back to the, to the insane, the crazy. So I, I expect that the church's evolution and adaptation to the current pandemic and the race issue will actually enrich community. The relationships will be more real and authentic, will take better care of each other. I think it'll feel more real. That's awesome. I love it. Okay, well, we're going to wrap this part of the project. I want to, I want to hear from you, though, before we get to our final three questions. What is your hope when someone picks up this book, dives in, reads these letters, and it really kind of ingests all this information? What do you hope they walk away with? Well, I think primarily my hope is it will do for others what it's done for me and my relationship with my dad, what that's done for me, which is to keep our lives kind of grounded in the incarnation. Uh, it's about living life in the flesh. It's relational, it's grounded, uh, it's personal, and that, that those in ministry in their various roles as, pe as being people or signposts that point to the presence of uh, the kingdom of God as it's moving into the world would take heart and be encouraged that although it's difficult work, it's meaningful work. Um, I've just been over and over kind of re-struck by uh, what Jesus said. This is in uh, Matthew 13 is where it gets recorded. And he's telling these parables of the kingdom. And they're all pretty small metaphors that he's using to describe. There's seeds, there's a mustard seed, uh, there's yeast, you know, the leaven, all these really small and yet potent things. And, um, and I think there's a sense of kind of lifting up and honoring the small hidden work of ministry because it reflects the kingdom of God. And at the end of that set, uh, series of little parables that he tells, he says, every scribe who's been trained for the kingdom of God is like the master of a household who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And I think that's our work is to realize that we're in this old, old tradition and there's some enduring truths that don't change, but there are ever fresh ways for that to get expressed and manifested to a world that's continually shifting. Um, and I think that's the art of pastoring is the old and the new, uh, staying grounded in the historic truths, uh, the biblical imagination, and then being open to the creative winds of the spirit as it blows us into uh, new ways of exhibiting the kingdom. That's wonderful. I love that. Um, well, we like to ask um, all of our guests the same three questions at the end of every show. Um, and I'll just write them off for you and you can think about it. The first one is, what's a book that's changed your life? What's a habit that's changed your life? 
And then finally, what advice would you give to the younger you? So we'll start with the first one. What's a book that's changed your life? As you sit with a wall of books behind you <laughs> like there. Like a million books in your <laughs> office. <laughs> that's not half of them. Those are just my reference books. <laughs> I, without having to think about it a whole lot, I think I would probably say uh, Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. I read those when I was in college. And I think the reason I, I would point to those is that that's where I began to learn how to think theologically. This was a, you know, a giant of a mind who had a systematized way of thinking about the world. And I'm not a, I'm not a big fan of systematic theology, but I credit him with being my first real teacher in thinking theologically, which I believe is absolutely crucial to uh, ministering uh, in this world. Because otherwise we just get jerked around by every you know, new thing. But if we're grounded in, in a theological mindset, then uh, we can navigate those changes. So good. Uh, second one, what's a habit that's changed your life? Kind of the sacrosanct habit, I think, is just a morning walk. I live in the woods, and I rarely miss this, uh, where, you know, grab a cup of coffee, get the dog. It's just half an hour. But it's a slow, plodding walk. It's quiet. And I've found that just creating some space first thing of the day and seeing what happens, you know, paying attention, just being, it's just kind of striking a posture of openness and receptivity. That is among the most important things that I do. That's great. I love that. And um, the final one is what advice would you give to the younger you? <laughs> oh, how I would love to do that. <laughs> Wouldn't we all? <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm, I'm 57 years old. I've been, Next Wednesday, I'll celebrate 30 years of ordained ministry. And um, there's a lot of striving. I think maybe that's true for a lot of young people. It was a lot of work and aspiration and labor, and it just felt like strife. I was, I was probably working too hard. And I, I think the 57-year-old the me would go back to the 20-something me and grab me by the shoulders and say, your life belongs to God you can relax and don't delay practicing joy. You should start practicing that right now. Uh, Cause I'm, I'm bad at it even now. Um, <laughs> I wish I'd practiced it earlier. I thought you were going to say you'd go back and baptize all your friends in the basement. <laughs> <laughs> get over here. When you come over, you get baptized. <laughs> so funny. That's great. Well, thank you so much for your time and for doing this. And you know, even just, sharing some of the things, being authentic that you're wrestling with as a, as a leader in the church in this unprecedented time that we're in right now. So it really means a lot to us. Where can people find you, get the book, all that good stuff? Um, I don't have a website, um, but I'm on, I'm on Facebook and Instagram, Eric Peterson. The books can be picked up over at the Nav Press website or on Amazon. Great. We absolutely love it. Well, right. we'll be thank following you. your journey, cheering you on. And uh, thank you so much for joining us today. I feel, I just want to say, I feel really honored to be included in your podcast. Thank you for lifting up this work. And what I've learned is that we can honor our parents no less in death than in life. And uh, this has felt like an important project in order to keep uh, Eugene's voice alive. So thank you very much.
Well, thanks again, as always, for coming and hanging out with us here at the Live It Well podcast. We hope that this message encouraged you as much as it has us. As always, we'll have all the links mentioned in today's episode over in our show notes at our website, letsliveitwell.com. And we would love to hear from you. You can find us and follow us on all the social platforms, Facebook, Instagram. We would love to hear what's going on in your life and stay up to date with all things at Live It Well. All right, guys. Well, that's a wrap for this episode. We're going to close it out like we do every single week. It's great to be back for a season. and It's great to be saying this again. So let's all say it together. Remember, you only get one life. Live Live it it well. well.